Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Amen. Thank you, Kathy. Good morning. How you doing? Good to see you all. Great to worship with you all. If you don't know me, I'm Bill. My wife, Mary and I lead this church as of this summer, and it's been awesome doing that with you all. Your guest today, welcome. I'm really glad you're, you're here. So, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, creator, before all things, the head of the body, the beginning, firstborn from the dead, preeminent, the fullness of God, reconciler, redeemer, and he holds it all together, as our title slide says here above me. In this series on the book of Colossians, we're going to follow along as the Apostle Paul encourages and instructs the believers at a city called Colossae. We'll see how Christ holds together the entire letter that Paul writes and how he holds together the entire life of anyone who puts their faith in him. So our last series, Kathy just mentioned it, was called Beautiful Resistance. It was topical. It was based on the framework given in a book, not the Bible, a different book titled Beautiful Resistance. As so we looked across scripture to see what it had to say about a given topic, this series is a little different. It's exegetical. It means we're going to look at the book of Colossians in our Bible, and we're going to go through it verse by verse and see what it has to say in the order that it has to give from the context that it's written in. Then we'll apply it to our own church and our own lives together. During this series, we're going to lean heavily on two commentaries. So I thought I'd show them to you here at the beginning. If you want to uh, get them, they're great books. One's written by uh, Scott Pace and Daniel Aiken. The other one's written by N.T. Wright. I'll quote them a lot today and in the weeks to come as well. We're going to spend four weeks on Colossians, you guys. We're going to spend two weeks now. Then we'll have that revival weekend that Kathy talked about. It's going to be a lot of fun. And awesome. And then we'll do two more weeks of Colossians just into December. So that's what you can expect. I hope you're ready. I am. Here we go. (laughs) So Colossians is a letter written by a particular person to a particular church with their own particular issues at a particular time in history. It's really important to understand that when we read New Testament letters. There's some work involved in understanding the letter in its own context so we can understand what it means, and then we can apply it to our own lives and to our own church community. So to understand context, you have to ask some questions before and while you read the book. Things like, who wrote this letter? Did I know it was a letter. Who did he write it to? Where did they live? How do these guys know each other? When was it written? Why was it written? And how did this thing get in my Bible? We'll answer a lot of those questions this morning and throughout the series, but it's going to kind of give us that context. It's not just a grab bag of spiritual truths. It's a letter written by a man to a church, maybe like ours, maybe different. We've got to dig in and find out so we can understand what it means. We're going to start doing that this morning. Colossians is written by a man named the Apostle Paul. He writes... To a church in a city, in that red section of this map, the city's Colossae or Colossae, depending on, I'm going to go with Colossae today. It's close to where Paul went on his third missionary journey that we read about in the book of Acts, 
He didn't go to this city himself, and he didn't plant this church. Epaphras did, but then he came and told Paul all about it and how the Colossians were doing in their new faith. Paul writes the letter to them from prison. Depending who you read, he may be in different places, maybe in Ephesus in prison. He writes in the early 50s AD. So this is about 20 years after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. He writes to encourage them in their faith. They're a young church. They haven't existed for a long time. So that's part of the context. But think about it. It's a city on a river. We've got a river. Today, this city would be within the borders of the country of Turkey. At the time, it wasn't a big city. It wasn't particularly important, although it used to be bigger and more important than it was at the time that Paul writes. It's pretty close to a couple of bigger cities that were more important at the time the letter is written. And this city's within the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had about a million people in it at this time. 50,000 of those were Jewish people. So about 5% of the Roman population was Jewish. And that's where Christianity comes from, up and out of the Jewish religion. Did you know Jesus was a Jew? <laughs> Some people are surprised, maybe. He was indeed. Okay, so this letter was originally intended to be read aloud in the church gathering and then circulated to other churches in the region. It became an important document in the life of this new movement called Christianity. And eventually, it was canonized, that means collected with other letters, the Gospels that are the story of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection. They're put together in what we now call the New Testament. And N.T. Wright says that Paul has written a letter in the book of Colossians in which he's distilled his understanding of some of the greatest themes in theology. That's a pretty lofty thing to say about a letter, isn't it? So what it tells me is that this is an important letter with a very important message for us. And I've been wanting to talk about it for a long time. So I'm really excited to do so. The last time we did an exegetical series was actually about a year ago on the book of Philippians. And it was awesome. So I'm so excited to dig into this letter with you guys this month. So why did Paul write the letter? Let's start there. You guys, are, if you're mapping it out and looking at your watches, you're like, he hasn't even gotten to verse 1 yet. I know. It's a challenge to, to move along at a pace. You're like, four weeks and we haven't started verse 1. How long is he going to keep me here today? I plan to end on time and I hope that we maybe accelerate and get through the book. And if not, that's okay. We'll go how far we go. So I'm going to put forth three reasons I think Paul wrote the letter. They're not the only reasons. This is just Bill's idea of it. But he writes to show the beauty, the majesty, and the divinity of Jesus. That's one reason, and a good one. He writes to fortify this church against false teachings. A good reason to write a letter. And third, he writes to instruct them on living and maturing as Christians. So first, the beauty, majesty, and divinity of Jesus. Wright says that the real center of Paul's thought is the crucified and risen Jesus. He says that Jesus is seen as the revelation in action of the one creator God. Does that make sense? The revelation in action, not just a mystical truth about God, but in a human being. That's what Jesus is. 
the creator God, who steps on the stage of history to fulfill his purposes and his promises, to create for himself a worldwide people to call his own, both Jew and Gentile. Jesus is the center of this letter, and he holds it all together. Paul also writes to fortify against false teaching. So what false teaching? Paul's got this button that gets pushed a lot in the letters he writes. They're the people who push that button, he likes to call them the circumcision party. He refers to them in several of his letters. The crux of the conflict he has with them is laid out in Acts chapter 15. But basically, they're Jewish Christians who are going around to churches saying, hey, you need to be Jewish. If you're not already, you need to become a Jew. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow these other laws in, uh, that Moses wrote in the old, what we call the Old Testament. But Paul vehemently disagrees with them. And he writes about it an awful lot as you read the New Testament, including in Colossians. So what they do in Acts chapter 15, we read about it. They call a council of apostles and leaders in the church to go, what are we going to do about this problem? And Peter stands up and he reminds them about how he was called to go and share the good news about Jesus in the home of a Gentile. That's someone who's not Jewish. And what Peter says is that when they believed the words that he told them, God gave them the Holy Spirit, just like he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And that's the foundation that Paul writes on in the letter to the Colossians as well. Now, guys, we may not be dealing with a circumcision party showing up after I finish preaching and trying to convince you to be circumcised. There might not be hot debate around the coffee counter after service about the merits of circumcision and whether you're saved or not if you're not circumcised. Uh, But in defense of his position, Paul lays out these like spiritual truths that are so deep and so important. So though we're not arguing about the exact same issue, we can start to understand the context that he's writing into, and we can start to pull that out and go, what does that mean for me in my life, in my church, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, in 2022? So Paul teaches us that God has done what the law and wisdom could not do. He sent his son to reconcile us. He dealt with sin on the cross And he gave us access to true life in him. The church need look nowhere else for forgiveness for the past, for maturity in the present, and for future hope. These concepts ring true even today, don't they? All right, he also writes to, um, let me go back. He also writes to instruct on living and maturing as Christians. Paul is guiding the Colossians to put to death the old ways of living and to put on a new way, to seek a new life in Christ. He shows them how to order their households around Jesus as Lord, as opposed to what their culture might tell them to do when they order their households. Within the life of the church, the letter to the Colossians will always have an important part to play. We need to grow in our knowledge of God of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We need to know that maturity comes only through him and not through man's traditions or laws. We're not Colossians, but we are Christians. And so I think with that, we set the table well to start getting into the letter. And those of you checking your watch again, it's time to get to verse one. 
<laughs> Let's read the first two verses. Paul, you don't have to read it with me. I didn't mean to set you up like you had to. I'll read it to you. And if you want to pull out your Bible and follow along, we are going to look at it sort of phrase by phrase as we go. That'd be a handy tool to have at your disposal. I won't keep it up there all the time as we're talking through it. But he writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So at the beginning of the letter, Paul writes with authority. He signs the letter at the beginning, which was their custom. We sign it at the end, right? Sincerely yours, Phil Menser. He signs it at the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So he marks his apostleship. Why does he do that? So he can say that he has authority to speak into their life, that they can trust him, right? Now, Paul wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He wasn't one of the broader uh, group that followed Jesus through his ministry. Paul became an apostle on a road to Damascus where he was going to persecute Christians. His apostolic ministry is launched from a supernatural encounter with the risen Jesus along the side of the road. He's actually blinded and had to be healed from whatever prevented him from seeing. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9, and it's there that Jesus says this about Paul. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Paul writes as an apostle with the authority of Jesus to carry his name and to carry his message to the world. Next, Paul writes to a community. The letter is written to a church community, not one individual. It's good to notice that. It's intended to be read aloud in the church gathering, like we said. And this reminds us not to interpret it in a purely individualistic setting. Right? We can't read it and just apply it only to ourselves because it wasn't written to one person. It's not readily transferable to an individual, but to a community. So you have to take it in. N.T. Wright says, Christian truth is a corporate possession. We own these truths together. It's in the context of the church community that we should expect to have our wrong ideas gently corrected, our right ones, right ones gently suggested to us, and where we contribute to those same activities. Get what I'm saying there? Got the quote from N.T. Wright. Maybe a little lofty. He's British and really smart. <laughs> the idea is that we hold the truths of the Bible together, that when I get off track, you can help me get back on track, and I can do the same for you that we have a responsibility together to understand God's truth, to interpret it, to imply it to this family of believers. Thank you. So it's written to a community that he calls saints. Saints as a, an identity, even more than a title. It's who they are. These are people who have committed to believe in Jesus and have been baptized into the family of believers in his name. They're faithful, faithful in the sense that they're firmly committed and steadfast in that commitment to believe and follow Jesus. And it begs the question to us, are you a saint and a faithful follower of Jesus? If so, this letter is for you and for us. as We make that commitment together. And if you're not a believer and follower of Jesus today, what you're going to see, if you hang out for the whole series especially, <laughs> 
is that it's going to put on display the beauty and splendor of Jesus and help you understand who he really is. You're going to have opportunity to make a commitment to him and become his follower. I hope you'll do that if you haven't already. Third, Paul writes with a goal in mind. N.T. Wright says that he writes so that they will grow into full Christian maturity. The greeting here is grace to you and peace from God our Father. So grace sees the Christian life as a gift from God. You don't earn salvation. You don't earn your way into God's kingdom. It's given as a gift through Jesus Christ. And peace is the greeting from Paul. Peace comes with, he was Jewish also, it comes with the overtone that's there in the Hebrew language. It's shalom. It means more than just peace of mind or just peace for you. It's this broader notion of wholeness and peace and the wider blessings of belonging to God's covenant family and receiving his promises. N.T. Wright says, with this greeting, the scene is set for a letter through which Paul intends by his writing of this letter to be a means of that grace and so to bring about a rich and mature peace in this young congregation. So let's move on to the next section together. Verses 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let me go back. See at the very beginning, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Paul starts here. Jesus is Lord and Christ. This is fanciful language, but I'll explain it to you. The familiar composite title for Jesus is not merely a heaping up of honorific phrases, but a very precise statement of who Jesus is from God's and the church's point of view. What N.T. Wright is saying is, it's not an empty title. Paul isn't just throwing out, oh, the Lord Jesus Christ. It means something really specific. Peter uses this same title when he addresses the crowd that gathers after the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. He says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Paul in this letter and Peter in his address to the crowd are really specific about that title, aren't they? I don't know about you, but when I read these letters in the New Testament, I blow right through that so easily. You know, it's just, oh, he's greeting. Let's get to the, the truths I can pull out and use for my life. <laughs> you ever do that? You admitted it just like I did. You're so honest. Good job. So Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? This same word is used all over the New Testament to describe God. Let that sink in. If anyone tells you that the New Testament doesn't call Jesus God, they're crazy. They haven't read it and understood it. It's everywhere. 
Jesus talks about, um, he refers to the Old Testament. And when his, his words are recorded for us, this word Lord is used to describe God. It's right here in Mark 12, 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. When Paul says Jesus is Lord, he's saying something. And so for us, what does it mean to have a Lord? It means we serve at his pleasure to implement his will, doesn't it? Jesus said in Matthew 10, 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his Lord. So to be a Christian means to make Jesus Lord, master, and king in your life. You guys, you don't add the Christian religion to your life. It is your life if you're really a Christian. You give up everything to serve him. Now, don't get me wrong. If you give up everything, you get so much more than you could ever ask or imagine. What you give up is like filthy rags, and what you gain is like a great treasure, isn't it? I see heads nodding, people who who have experienced that. It's so common in America, though, to get it backwards. We tend to live as if we're the Lord of our own life, the Lord of our own home, the Lord of our own time, the Lord of our own money. And we dole out bits and pieces of it to God. That's swapped, isn't it? We'll read about how Paul is not confused, how Paul suffers for Jesus and considers it an honor to do so. And so when he uses this title for Jesus, he's establishing something, isn't he? Jesus is Lord. The other title is Christ. Christ is the title for God's anointed one. Or in some translations, you'll see the word Messiah. All of the Old Testament history and prophecy points to Jesus. He fulfills this title and this role. Or as the Bible Project says, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Just love that way of putting it. It's all leading up to and pointing to him. Jesus is the anointed one they've been waiting for for hundreds of years. Everything God did in the lives and the communal life of his people points to this moment. And Paul says, it's happened. He's the one. Check it out. He came to suffer, die, and be the first of a resurrected new creation. He's what God had planned from the moment our ancestors fell in the Garden of Eden by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This plan's been in place for a long time. Paul talks about this, how Jesus is the fulfillment of what's in the Old Testament. When he's standing before a governor and someone who knows the Old Testament, Acts 26, 22, and 23, this is Paul talking. He says, I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. So in Colossians, Paul positions God as Father and Jesus as Lord Christ, God and Savior. These titles are consistently given to Jesus throughout the New Testament. Next, we see how Paul is thankful for the faith, 
the love and the hope that he's heard about in the Colossian church. The construction of verses 3 through 5a explains the Colossians' faith and love as a byproduct of their hope. Hope is the stimulating source for their abiding faith and active love. Did you notice that a lack of hope is what causes us to give up on things? It's what causes us to quit. This is why long-distance runners have a run buddy. Because if you run far enough, you're going to want to quit. But hopefully, when you do want to quit, your run buddy's there with you, and their hope hasn't run out yet. (laughs) And hopefully they'll say, come on, you got this. You can do it. I got your back. We're going to finish this thing together. Don't give up. just struck by how that's part of our communal aspect of holding God's truth together, isn't it? To be run buddies for each other. To tell each other to not give up when the going gets tough. To run with each other. But here Paul plays the role of run buddy. He says, I see your faith. I see your love in action. You're true believers. Remember, saints, faithful ones. You have hope laid up for you in heaven. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Remember in the Beautiful Resistance series, we talked about how we walk the hard and narrow road. We go through the narrow gate as Christians. Jesus warned us that that would be the case. Paul knows it very well. He lives it. And so he says, keep your eyes on hope. There's a hope firmly established for you in heaven you're a follower of Jesus. Paul is reminding them and us of the infinite significance of our hope as the foundational anchor for our souls. That commentary is referencing Hebrews 6.19, which was in our reading plan this week. You might recognize it. I think it was yesterday or maybe the day before. Next, Paul says that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing The gospel bears fruit wherever it's communicated. But what does the word gospel mean? So I thought we'd just let our friends at the Bible Project tell us what it means for a couple minutes. They've got this great video on the meaning of the word gospel, so we're going to check it out. If you know any Christians, or if you happen to be one, you've probably heard the word gospel as a kind of summary of Christian belief, connected to phrases like, God loves you, or Jesus died for your sins. But over time, religious words like gospel can lose their power and meaning by becoming too familiar. So let's take a moment to rediscover what this important word, gospel, meant to the people who wrote the Bible. Gospel translates the Old Testament Hebrew verb, biser, and the noun, besorah. The Greek New Testament equivalent is euangelion, which is a compound word. You means good, and angelion means announcement. All of these words mean good news, but what kind of news? Well, in Hebrew, Biser is what we might call national news or a royal announcement. Like when King David hears a messenger Biser that his army was victorious in battle. That means he still rules on his throne over the people of Israel. And after David dies, his throne is passed on to Solomon, his son. And when he was inaugurated as king in Jerusalem, a herald spreads the Besorah, that a new ruler is in charge. But after Solomon's death, 
came a bunch of bad news kings whose corruption led their nation into self-destruction. This is why the prophet Isaiah announced the good news that one day the God of Israel would come as the cosmic king to confront all corrupt and violent kingdoms and restore his rule over all nations. And so, when Jesus of Nazareth hit the public stage, he continued Isaiah's gospel. When he went around announcing the euangelion of God's kingdom, Jesus claimed that God was restoring his reign over his people Israel and over all nations, and he was the one bringing it all about. Now, the euangelion about a new king in charge means a new way of life. Jesus said that living in God's kingdom meant following him by putting down the sword and seeking peace through radical forgiveness and generosity even toward your enemies. His good news required people to make a decision. This is why Jesus took his euangelion to Jerusalem to confront the corrupt and violent kingdoms of his day. But he challenged them in a surprising way with the power of God's generous love. As Jesus was being executed by his enemies, he received his crown and was mocked as a fake king. But he displayed true royal authority by forgiving his tormentors. Jesus was the one in charge that day, giving his life for the sins of others. And then, a few days later, everything changed. Jesus rose from the dead as the true king, whose love is stronger than death. He appeared to hundreds of his followers and told them to spread the euangelion, that all authority in heaven and on earth now belongs to him. And they did share this good news all over the ancient world. They did it by writing the four accounts of Jesus' life that are the gospel. That is, they tell the story of how Jesus brought God's kingdom, how he lived for others and died for their sins, and then was raised from the dead. Jesus' followers also shared the good news by simply talking about it. This is why Peter and Paul, or Priscilla and Aquila, traveled all around sharing the royal announcement. While it might look like the rulers of our world are in charge and can do whatever they want, the good news is that the crucified and risen Jesus is the true Lord of the world, the real king of all creation. And in Jesus' kingdom, things are different. It's where the real leaders are the servants because the last are first, and the first go to the back of the line. It's where the hungry are fed and the homeless are welcome, because love is the most powerful reality of God's kingdom. And this good news is not easy to believe. It actually sounds kind of crazy when you first hear it, but something happens when people tell the story of Jesus and start living like he really is the king of the world. That's when this gospel becomes the best news that you've ever heard. <laughs> that's the good news that's what it means gospel paul's a messenger of this good news and he's writing to recognize the work of the good news in the colossian church the kingdom of jesus has been proclaimed and is coming to life in their community of believers paul writes like the gospel is almost a person like a personified force at work in the world, and at work in their church. The gospel, where its truth is recognized and its command obeyed, it bears fruit. The phrase bearing fruit emphasizes the reproductive nature of the gospel. And the word increasing that Paul writes refers to its maturing capability. 
So when someone hears and believes the good news about Jesus, the gospel, a new life in the kingdom is born. It reproduces. When someone embraces the gospel lifestyle, that new life deepens and matures more and more into the image of Jesus. So already here in the beginning of this letter, Paul has begun to reveal the truth that's most important to him. That in Christ, God, the creator and recreator of the world and of humanity, has shown up. In Christ, there's a new beginning, a new genesis. So I want to ask you the question this morning. Do you want to be recreated? Do you want a new beginning? Do you hear the good news and do you feel ready to respond and join the kingdom of Jesus? In another one of Paul's letters, he writes that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So if you've never made this step to become a follower of Jesus, to make him your king and enter his kingdom, I'd encourage you to do so today. We have a prayer team that will be available to pray with you. If you have become a new creation in him, lean into that new creation life. Do practical things every day that grab that spiritual truth and bring it down into reality. Let the gospel do its maturing work in you, in your relationships, in your workplace, in your habits, in your family, in every part of you. Amen. Kathy, would you come? Amen. Yeah, it was just, uh, that was good. It was good. It, it just, uh, uh, sorry. So if you're here today and you don't know what the good news is, you weren't listening. <laughs> but if you don't know what the good news is, it, the news is that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And he wants you to be set free. And you're like, what do, I, what do I need to be set free from? Maybe that's what you're thinking. Well, you need to be set free from the sins that bind you. Did you know that sin actually puts chains around you and shackles you? So many times I hear people in the world saying, well, I just want to do what I want to do. Except you don't realize what you're asking for is to be chained to something. I was talking with a friend and they were talking about addiction and how, how hard it is to break free, but it's in a, it is a chain that's kept you bound. Jesus comes to break you free. Did you know that? The reason Jesus died was so that you could be set free, free from things that harm you. The sin in your life harms you. It's actually destroying your heart and the people around you. Have you looked at people in the world that are so bound up? We want them to be free. And if you're here today and you haven't experienced that, experienced that freedom, I believe the Lord is asking you today to take that step because he wants us to be free. God doesn't con control us. Who likes to be controlled? <laughs> Not me. He came so that we could be set free. People often look at Christians and say, well, you have 
this God who wants to control you. He doesn't want to control you. He wants to set you free. And if you are already a Christian and there's an area of your life that you haven't surrendered, today's the day. Today's the day. So we're going to just pray. And I, I, I really, if I would encourage you, if you can, to stand and pray with me. Father, I thank you so much that you sent your one and only son to die a death that was horrific to pay the penalty for my sin. He rose three days later declaring his authority over death, his dominion, that he rules over all, and we can be set free just by believing that, by professing that Jesus died and rose again, we can be set free. Walking out that salvation is a little more complicated, but our freedom comes just by declaring your lordship. So for those today who didn't know they could be set free, we just thank you that they heard the gospel, they heard the good news. And for those who are struggling with an area that they want to surrender, Lord, I just, just help them to say, I'm sorry. I give this to you today. I want freedom. Yeah. In Jesus' name, amen. We do have a prayer team and a rhema team available. If you would like to receive prayer or just hear an encouraging word from the Lord, that's what a rhema team does. They, they give you an encouraging word from the Lord, and it's always so good. So take advantage of that. Come back next Sunday for the continuation of our Colossians series. And with that, go do and be Christ in your community. Amen.